Welcome to episode two of the Listen Here podcast. This week, we're chatting with Jacinta McMahon. Uh, Jacinta is a user experience consultant at Thirst Studios in Melbourne. I really, really enjoyed this chat. We spoke sort of broadly about what UX design is uh, and then more specifically around how they listen and research to understand people's motivations and how they put that into action. We spoke a little bit about this idea of listening between the lines, which was really fascinating. Uh, Also the incongruence between what people say and how they behave, positive and negative empathy levers, the pros and cons of personal bias, and the potential impact of artificial intelligence on UX design. There's a few things that we refer to in this episode that I've included in the show notes for you. So there's a few models that we refer to that I've popped in there. Um, I've also put in an example of an empathy map um, and then some broad information on design thinking. User experience design is a really fascinating field and there's all of these layers of listening that they use. So I really hope that you enjoy listening to this chat as much as I enjoyed having it. Jacinta McMahon. Hello. Welcome to the Listen Here podcast. Lovely to have you. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. So I thought we'd start. You're a user experience designer or a UX designer. Mm-hmm. Could you explain to me exactly what that is? Exactly. Well, I'll try. I'll try. Your, your interpretation um, of what So user experience design, um, obviously is a principle of design and it is putting the user at the heart of everything that we do. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically we, we, our, we, our clients ask, uh, they engage us to understand who their users are, what they really need, what mm-hmm. problems we might be solving with a product or a website or you know, what, what those customers who are actually using that website really need from it. Okay. So we conduct research and we have conversations with them. We do workshops to really understand them. And then we take that all away and design something that's really for them. It's, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Great. And is, so is it often for tech-based stuff, like for websites and that kind of stuff, or could it be anything? It could be anything. So there's a few different types, labels that get bandied around with uh-huh. UX design. There's one called CX design, which is customer experience design. Oh, okay. So um, a user of a website or a customer of a business, it's much the same. It's just the different touch points that a, the customer has with a business or an organization. Yeah. So it could be government, so it could be a service. So you often hear the term service design as well, but ultimately it's putting a human being at the heart of it and understanding what they need and when and why, yeah. and then designing to meet those things. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And is that something that you study to do or? You do, but I think that normally when I describe what UX design is to people who I meet in the street and I'm professing the whole sort of UX is awesome yeah. <laughs> um, is that I sort of have this flashback to when I had my first job in high school and it was retail yeah. and that old adage of the customer is always right sort of like that but it's it's um, more thorough and more um, considered so understanding what your customer really wants and why and then, you know, designing that thing. So it kind of makes sense from way back in high yeah. school, learning 
how to serve customers at Woolies. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's kind of both a theory and a process? It is definitely a process. So there's yeah. a process by which we move through different activities to understand our customers or users, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. The human being who... Um, yeah, cool. So tell me a little bit about that. So um, I understand that you sort of need to... Un- understand people's motivations behind why they're doing stuff and then you've got to work out how to respond to that. Just tell me a little bit about the processes you use. Um, Yeah, sure. So to uh, more directly answer your question, yes, I did go and study user experience design and that's more about learning the different activities and the phases of the design process that help to bring the the human being or the customer to the heart of that process. So, and a lot of that sits in the research. So in the research phase at the beginning of a project, we would do, um, I don't know how detailed you want me to be, different activities. So it is definitely a creative process. So we think about, well, what sort of, um, first of all, who are these customers who we're trying to engage with and what kind of research activities will help us really connect and understand them most thoroughly yep. in a way that's useful to the type of thing that we're designing. So often yep. we're doing workshops or we're having um, customer interviews, which which can be really good. There's also ethnographic research, which is more observational. So to mm. go, go out into a workplace or into a space and observe how people interact, how they behave. Yeah. Um, and we gather a lot of data and yeah. we take that away and we make sense of it yeah. um, to design something awesome. Yeah, cool. Because I, I was thinking about this earlier and I imagine there could potentially be a gap between what people tell you they do in a workshop environment and what people actually do when you're observing them in their real environment. You're so right. And do you, how do you sort of balance those two things? Mm. So um, the thing about ethnographic or observational research is it's kind of, it's expensive because it's time consuming because yeah, the length sure. of time and the period of time that you need to sort of stay out there in the field and observe people doing things, it could be infinite. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, recruiting people who are representative of a customer group and getting them in into a workshop environment, which is somewhat unnatural, yeah. I'll give you that. And we do ask them to do certain activities, but I think that we take opportunities to listen to the other stories that they say in the periphery of some okay, of the structured sure. activities. So we might set five activities for a two and a half hour workshop, but we don't stop listening to what mm. they're saying to one another or the participants in a workshop. It's usually about 10 people. It's the little things that, that happen <laughs> between yeah. the participants and the stories that you hear. Uh, so it's sort of filling like... Filling the gap, I think. It's bridging. Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of like listening between the lines kind of thing. Absolutely. Because mm. you ask people... So sometimes as a UX designer, we need to understand what do you need? What do you need from a website? What do you need from a product? What's important to you um, in terms of quality, customer service? And if I ask you that, you'll tell me somewhat what you think I want to hear. Yeah, yeah. But if I listen listen to the 10 people in the room tell their stories about good and bad experiences and then I hear what they tell one another and I can sort of, I can 
put a lens of truth over some of these things and yeah. make a bit more sense of it. Yeah, gotcha. Um, that sounds a bit ambiguous, but that's sort of how we do it. And do you um, sort of listen or look, I guess, for non-verbal stuff as well? Are you looking at body language and those sort of things? Absolutely. I think that as a facilitator of workshops, you have to read the people as well. Yeah. So the way that they feel or that they interact with one another. Some people are introverted, others are extroverted. Yeah. Um, and you need to sort of group people in such a way that it, it allows people to feel comfortable and be themselves and um, express how they really feel and, and not be a, a, overshadowed yeah. by an extra, if that makes sense. Yeah, so you sure. can see that, you know, in the right, ask the right questions or in the right space or as the right mm. combination, um, you can see how a person responds to a certain question or how they feel about yeah, often we're actually sure. asking them about existing experiences. Okay. So we take a, a, I'll be really, really um, vague about it, but take a website, okay, so tell mm -hmm. me about how you have used it in the past and why, um, and specifically go through a, a, a scenario of when you've used it, and I would sort of probe and understand how they feel, or perhaps emotionally yeah <laughs> the roller coaster of what that experience was like yeah sure so people are generally pretty honest about it but yeah <laughs> um yeah okay yeah cool so you've got sort of all these different bits and pieces that you bring together to form as close to, to the truth as you can yes and so how do you once you've gone and you've done all your research and then you bring it together to analyze it what's the process around that that's a super fun activity actually yeah uh, at the moment at work i've been documenting okay the different types of activities that we do um, there's an activity called affinity mapping have you heard of it before? no i haven't so it's really cool uh, it involves post-it notes most awesome. things with a ux designer or a designer involve post-it notes and sharpies yeah <laughs> um, basically you could use this after all sorts of research so it might be from observational research it could be interviews it could be from the workshops so one idea per post-it note and these are all different data points or observations that we've made from our research. So they could be stats from a, like a survey. They could be different responses that an interview per, a participant has given you. Mm -hmm. And one idea per post-it note, and we need a lot of walls in this kind of activity, yeah. because we, we start putting these post-it notes up on the wall and grouping them together in ways that make sense. And the interesting thing about the activity is ways that it makes sense is, are different for me than it is to my colleagues or to yourself and it's very much an activity mm -hmm. of seeing how people put things together and, and make sense of them. Also very interesting to see, so if you've taken notes from a workshop and your colleague has, they're often very different. And once you put them all together, yeah. sometimes you see different facets of the picture that you didn't notice uh, as an individual, yeah. but when you combine the two, I th that's when you, the ahas happen. Sure. And do you ever get conflicting ideas or messages? Yes. And that's the fun of it because then you sort of have this uh, conversation um, with the design team about, oh, that's what you heard. That's, that's interesting. And sometimes, sometimes we agree to disagree and that's okay. Um, yeah. But I think the general uh, philosophy of it is that we all hear it slightly differently anyway. Yeah. And there are 10 people in a room, so you can't 
hear everybody. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. People pick up on different yeah. bits and pieces. I think also this idea of um, bringing yourself into a listening situation with whatever biases you might have is an interesting one. Um, how do you combat that? Do you try to combat it or do you just say we're, we're all coming in here with our different biases or do you have any process around looking at them? Mm, not any structured one, but yeah. I am mindful of it. I yeah. know... But it's interesting, so with the kind of user research that we do, we understand that all users have their own biases as well. So sometimes mm. you're sort of empathy-driven in everything that we do. So we sort of slip into, well, this is how that user feels. Yeah. This is the biases that they have. Um, so the, I, I feel like I need to be quite flexible and um, be empathy-led and... Yes. slip in and out so I think that's a way that I forget about my own because I'm so focused on well, this is where I am right now I'm listening to this person's story yeah and trying to fully embrace how they feel so I'm kind of in that my yeah. notes at the end of um, a research workshop um, hard to follow well that I understand them but yeah, um yeah. that's what's sort of like, like yeah I keep it I'll have 10 different sort of sections of notes and each of them have their own interesting stories and their own unique biases yeah and that's kind of the beauty of it and is there anything that you do to sort of get yourself into that empathetic mindset do you in a room with 10 people to try and be each of those 10 people at one point in time is there anything that you do to help that or is it just practice or i think you can definitely practice it yeah. i think that it's uh, it's a trait that, that a lot of people just have yeah. and that can be really tiring. So I've definitely had to practice turning it off sometimes. So you go through a series of research and it can be really emotional or it could be um, confronting. Um, yeah. So I've definitely gone through that and sort of had to practice, well, at this, in this workshop space, I'm in empathy mode. I'm understanding all these people and walking out of it, I need to just be Jacinta. Yeah, and, yeah, and leave um, all the other personalities yes. behind. <laughs> still, you know, I don't, I don't lose anything. It's crazy how much you remember. Yeah. Um, but in terms of becoming um, more empathetic, uh, that's a tricky one. I feel like it's a really, it's an innate skill that we all have as human beings mm -hmm. I don't know what I really want to know your opinion on that but um I think that it's all about stories I think yeah. you get engrossed it's something almost like you sort of get engrossed in these stories it's sort of childlike almost yeah like listening to it and painting this picture in your mind of okay this is where this person was and this is how they felt and yeah, I suppose empathy yeah. is you do flick back and forward to your own life and you're making connections with, well, I felt that way once too. Exactly, yeah. And I think that's what it is. I, I certainly think some people are better at it than others and naturally better at it than others. Mm. Um, I think that you start to build those ties to be able to see yourself in someone else's shoes with exactly mm. that when you hear about a shared experience. And, you, and it could be something really simple as them talking about their grandma and you're like I have a grandma yeah I also I love, love my grandma <laughs> yeah and all of a sudden you're like okay you and me are the same we have this thing in common and then it becomes much more easy to empathize with someone when they're telling their opinions and stories because yeah. you feel like you've got that common basis random thing so I often take my dog to work and mm -hmm. I take her on the tram 
and and it, it is just the conversation, the story I'm telling you is about empathy. But yeah. I feel like your scenario there about your grandma, it was just the 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 lever that broke it open. So broke open that um, connection yes. and the empathy with a person. Yeah, exactly. But, my dog, she does that every day. So I hop on the tram and I have conversations with people because they see the dog. They have a dog. They like dogs. Or it's just a lever that yeah. breaks it open, makes it okay to engage with somebody, and it just sort of creates connections. You know what I think's interesting? I like this idea of a lever. I think that's a really nice, yeah, it's a really nice metaphor. I like it. But I think often, and I don't know if it's an age thing or if it's just, I don't know, I think particularly being younger, a lot of the time that lever that people use is a negative one. So people will rally around hating their boss or it it being too hot or, you know, that seems to be much more often used than positive ones for Mm. people to find that sort of connection yeah which is sad isn't it because like a grandma or a dog is heaps nice (laughs) I know but I feel like yeah I totally agree actually Mm. so it's normally about so with customer research a bad experience a shared bad experience is the great you know leveler um of the playing field oh wow Mm. we had the same bad experience yeah but I do I enjoy I feel like the the tone of it the atmosphere with the dog is always like a, a happy it's an one. one yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll have a conversation about just random things, which is these are the, the opportunities to connect with people properly. Yeah. Um, mm. well, that's interesting. I think that's probably a nice thing to keep in mind. Just thinking personally, you mm. know, when you meet someone or you're in those situations, you're you know joining a class for the first time, you're in a workshop with people you don't know being conscious of looking for positive levers rather than negative. I think we definitely gravitate towards negative ones. People remember negative experiences more and they're much more present in there. You know, something bad happens in your day that's going to be a bigger, yeah, yeah, it's much more sticky than something good most of the time or something neutral. Hmm. That's really interesting. I wonder what the outcome is. So uh, from a customer research perspective, what if you ask, you know, tell me about the best experience. I'm wondering if if it's more real than if it's um, a bad one. I don't know. I wonder if people remember as well, because usually with some, well, I guess it depends on what they're using, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're using a website and everything just works, you probably don't notice. I know. If it's perfect and everything works perfectly, (laughs) you probably don't go, I'd love that website. That was amazing. (laughs) You just don't notice it because it worked well. That's really funny. That's another debate of whether good design is invisible, which I think that's a big topic because it is. Mm. So if if it's been designed beautifully and it meets your need and it's intuitive to every whim that you have without you even knowing it, you won't notice and You it. don't notice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good design being invisible. Mm. Interesting. And so I guess you're always kind of designing to alleviate the negative in a way. Mm. Is that what most of your research is based around, finding out what really annoys people? And taking, take, stripping that away. Yeah, removing friction is definitely one thing. So I yeah. suppose it depends when you, you're working with a client and they come with a problem. Something's not working, something's not achieving the kind of success that they want it to. So then we would sort of analyse the whole picture and see whether there are actually problems or perhaps we just don't understand 
um, you know, what needs the customer has to begin with. Yep. So it's kind of that positive negative yeah, uh, slant sure. on things. Yeah. What are we choosing? Are we going to just research a customer and really understand them and then give them what they need rather than alleviate the pain of something that's not working? Mm. It depends on the, depends the, on the client. And the, yeah. But yeah, both, definitely. Right. And do people, are most people coming to you with a problem to solve? Sometimes. Um, sometimes not. Sometimes they, they want to generate new ideas and opportunities. Yeah. Uh, it depends on where they are in the sort of life cycle of their, their business or their organisation. Yeah, sure. But a lot of organisations are embracing design as a way to yeah. innovate within their business. So often they're coming not with a problem, but to like create new things which is exciting yeah cool yeah where does this the sort of the theory and processes of user experience design how does that relate to design thinking it's very very similar yeah yeah uh i i I probably wouldn't spout the difference in methodology but basically design thinking i can't remember the five ingredients it's like discover, define, uh, design. In there. Yeah. <laughs> so basically we do research, we yeah. really define what problem we're solving, uh, then we uh, start to generate ideas or concepts, then we prototype it, so we make something that's like that concept that we can test, we test it, we get real customers to play with our prototype and learn from them what, how they really behave. Um, what's not working, what's working, then we change it and then we set it out yeah. into the world and we keep on testing. It's very much a loop. Yeah. Build this thing. It's never quite complete because we know that human beings change. So we watch them, yeah. we listen to them and we keep up with them by changing our product or whatever it is, service. Okay. Yeah, cool. So it's quite aligned with design yeah, thinking. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like maybe it's sort of an application of design thinking yeah. even maybe. Mm. Um, and so if you've worked on a project with a client, I can understand that it kind of would be never ending in a way, mm. potentially, mm. like if you've got money to spend on it forever. Yeah. How long do you usually spend after you, so say you've gone through that process, you've done the, um, the research and the ideation and the prototyping and all of this stuff, what sort of tail do you have on that like how many times would you go around that circle how how long do you keep observing your users for to see if you need to change anything Ooh, else or? that's a good question it does depend on the client and the budget yeah but sure. the whole sort of often we we get to do research and we build build the thing and then we um, set in place metrics or ways to analyze how it's working and we entrust you know the lovely client who's gone through that process to continue that work so oh, okay. to continue to test cool to have a testing plan to um, come back around and sort of let us know where there are things that need to be changed so you set them up with systems with technology yes with, yeah so i mean you can you can have metrics and sort of analytics let uh, google analytics as an example so yeah. if we've designed for a certain behavior and we can put a metrics in place that identifies if that's actually successful or not. Yeah. Then there's a little sort of red flag when it's not successful that's saying, okay, let's look at this again and understand what's what's happening. We cool. also do usability testing. So sometimes 
a client will come to us and we'll actually do current usability testing on their <clears throat> website and identify areas that do need to change and we can do it that way. Or we do that at the end of the process. It's sort of uh, puzzle pieces that can yeah. be moved around. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, and what if it's not a website? What if it's a service or how do you sort of do the analytics of stuff? And that would be observational. And there's okay. other different ways. So um, staff. So if it's a service, then it needs to be a measure of the people who offer that service. So uh, whether that's sort of surveys or feedback, a feedback loop that's saying whether it's working or not. Yeah. Um, but that's a bit more of a trickier process. Yeah, <coughs> sure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. And then you go back into that... Um, balance of what people tell you versus what they're actually doing and if you have their capacity to actually observe and all that sort of stuff. Yes. Yeah. So observation is, is really powerful in that. A lot of the big companies, corporates, would have sort of surveys and um, customer sentiment surveys that they can check whether things are working. But again, do people say how they really feel or mm. yeah, are they just telling you yeah, what, what you? it's interesting because I, I mean, not that I have the intention of lying with things like that, but sometimes when you put on the spot, you, you kind of like, sometimes you might have a totally neutral opinion, but there's the way that questions are worded, you can't even <clears> say something just to say something, you know, or you just haven't had enough time to think about how you actually feel, or you don't, you don't want to be mean. True. Yeah. <laughs> how honest is, can yeah. you be? But definitely. So that's another thing as part of our research. Often we're designing interview questions or test questions or survey questions. There are a lot of questions that we put out, but they're very carefully considered so as not to bias or not to lead right. a person to a certain answer. Yeah. That's a really nice. tricky, uh, challenging, uh, thing to do. Yeah, and is that based on um, anything in particular? Your experience of using different types of questions? Or is there research behind what There's a bit of trial and error. Yeah. But there are, yeah, there's all sorts of different questions that you can ask open and closed. Um, yeah. But generally, I think that asking about the way that somebody actually behaves instead of how they feel is, is probably the yeah, better way of questioning. So the way okay. they actually behave, the way they actually use a thing, an example of when they did, you're going to get a less biased response than mm. asking a person how they felt about it, which is a little um, less... Yeah, a little more... And it's more, yeah, that's yeah. more qualitative, not quantitative, but... <clears throat> yeah. And can you sort of... Do you use that information to determine how they felt? Like, you use their actions to determine how they felt about I something? do believe that, particularly from being in workshops where you ask people about these situations. You can, you can draw conclusions about the way people feel when they tell you a story of an experience that they had. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, what about, so I can imagine in this line of work, the sort of new stuff that's coming out with artificial intelligence and responsive technology and technology that learns, is that something that you're starting to look into in that field at the moment? Is we, It's funny. We, um, we have an internal projects at work that we get to explore different things that we're interested in and how we might... Um, 
try to solve a problem differently, one of our own problems or a client problem. And we have started to sort of research into artificial intelligence. Gosh, it's really complex. Yeah. And I'm not a very technical person. But um, looking at the way, so I described that we take all these data points from the research that we conduct. And as humans, we put post-its on the wall and we move them around in ways that make, make it meaningful. And this is how we sort of draw out insights from our research. But what if we could use AI to do that? This is a very metaphorical question because I don't mm. know the answer whether a computer could group and regroup data points to really draw out human meaning or differentiate an emotion from a, oh, yeah, yeah, just a, I don't know, a observation or a time or a place. How do we deduct? emotion or the real attitude of a person in research it's so interesting because in some ways i mean your sort of your gut reaction to it is oh there's no way that technology could listen as well as a human being could because they don't understand the human experience but then in other ways they're not coming in with any bias unless you program it into them to have True. a particular bias mm. and then in terms of observation there's things like they can observe um micro expressions and all this sort of stuff that um that we probably can't see or we could interpret as something completely different because mm. we all perceive the world in a different way but then is there an extra layer of something that you just don't get as a machine i don't know i, I don't, don't know, know either but yeah. that's a good point perhaps they're more perceptive and scientific in the way that they perceive emotion than we are we just go with our gut and our heart and mm. how we interpret things which is different for each of us yeah but then i guess going back to the sort of empathy thing would a person really i think you'd still need a human there because you wouldn't sort of open up to a machine or maybe yeah. you would maybe you'd be more honest i don't know depends what you're doing i guess doesn't but it but do you think you would need a human facilitator is that what you mean a human to yeah. talk to and then there's a computer observing and gathering data yeah wow yeah it's <laughs> going to be interesting right because yeah. this stuff is this stuff's happening like this isn't a far off in the future thing it's mm -hmm. you know it's i have a feeling google's onto this i don't know I, yeah we're probably <laughs> being observed right now <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it'll be a really kind of fascinating, yes, I don't know, thing <laughs> to look into mm -hmm. in the future. Um, cool. So what about, obviously, as a graphic recorder, I'm all about the visuals mm -hmm. and I understand that that probably plays a bit of a role in this sort of stuff. And we, we actually met because you were a student mm -hmm. in my graphic recording yeah. course, mm -hmm. top student. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, do you use much of that stuff? When I you're... do. Yeah. Do you know awesome. that like at the beginning of every workshop I try and I'm not like, I'm not an artist, but that's the beauty of it because I think that yeah. it, it really makes people feel at ease. Well, yeah. So I use visuals. I also often in my workshops is that I have sort of an icebreaker where I get people to draw themselves. Oh, nice. Just a That's stick cool. figure or something about themselves. So in the last set of research, um, this adorable man, he drew himself and his two dogs. Um, <laughs> it was just lovely and it's like a way for to open up again and, um, I don't know, include people in the process of um, connecting with one another. 
but yeah, I do use graphic recording. I often um, scribe workshops and people really right. enjoy it because it takes shape before their eyes. I also um, incorporate, often our activities and workshops are rather physical. So we get people up on their feet, they can either draw things or they're putting post-its on walls and plotting it out in chronological order. Yep. So it's quite, they're using their body to tell a story yeah. and really get into it. Um, I'm really interested in that because I think that we learn more from people when they're expressing themselves. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've looked at Lego. There's a you can use Lego to, yeah, to guide cool. people through expressing ideas. Yeah, mm. I think it's really nice to give that sort of broad range of ways because it'll. Some people will love it. Some people will hate oh, it. Yeah. But more than just written and verbal, I think is really valuable. Mm. So do people ever like draw for their like answer to something or? that kind of a thing or it's more about you communicating to them we can so sometimes we do like activities such as empathy maps or yep. storyboards so mm -hmm. uh, I talked about asking a customer about their experience we might actually get them to sort of sketch what that looked like so the different frames of an experience different touch points different emotions that they yep. might express through a storyboard so little yeah. stick figures, often nice. little, often little stick figures, yes, um, yeah. in different sort of situations. You can get an understanding for... So when they put together a storyboard, it might be a stick figure and it might be on a, at a certain place or time, and you can learn a, a lot from what they choose to include in that frame yeah. uh, about what's important or what they're actually considering at that moment in time. It's really interesting. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. Um, because obviously no one, in, in that sort of situation, it's not about making a work of art, no. but it's about exactly that. Like what, when you're really simplifying something, what is it that you choose to include? What do you choose to draw? There might be elements you choose to write and what yeah. might that mean? Exactly. Mm. Because it's, yeah. So what was even on your mind? So at that point in time, what's, what can't be left out of this picture? Mm. Uh, and this is interesting that we're talking about listening, but that's funny because it's actually seeing what they create, but it is also listening mm. to the detail. Yeah. So, okay, you've drawn your dogs. They must be really special to you. Um, what do I learn from that? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's about these details. And I think that's a lot of, you know, listening in it in the broad context of the word. is really It's sort of about tuning in. You know, tuning into those things, what's important to people and that sort of stuff. You sent me through a really lovely article that you wrote at the end of last year um, that goes over some models around people's motivations. I thought it could be cool to just talk through a couple of those. Mm -hmm. So these are sort of the things that sit behind what we've just been talking about. Is that Yeah, right? basically, yeah. Um, so the first one, people are probably familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but just in case they're not, would you mind just talking us through Yeah, it? I mean, I think most people are familiar with it. It's a pyramid. Um, at the very bottom are all the basics, you know, safety, food, and all the basic things that we need as humans. But when we're designing products or services, we sort of want to push higher. We want people to really be getting more than that. Yeah. Um, to really love it and for it to be part of their lives. So that's where we start stepping up 
uh, at the very top is self-actualization but I think that it's more about love or belonging and sense of community and really mm. enjoying enjoying a product or yes. a, a service um, so part of it. Um, so the levels that starts at the bottom with physiological and then safety, love, uh, sorry, level belonging, esteem and self-actualization. Yes, that's very aspirational. Very yeah, sounds so, amazing. <laughs> yeah, help me understand who I am and my place in the world. Yeah. So that's that's pretty. And so when you're when you're doing your research and all of this stuff and you're listening for what's important to people do you sort of have this in the back of your mind and you're listening at those various levels or are you thinking, okay, we really want to sit in the love and belonging bit. We're going to listen for stuff that's specific to that or? No, I think uh, definitely not consciously at all. Um, We, however, we know that there's some basic needs and both usually are some standards. So within the digital space, we have standard expectations and things that we need and, um, design conventions, um, safety might be security and other things you could probably sort of correlate oh, yeah, to different see, things. Yeah. Um, and then I think level belonging, I think delighting in a product or being part of a community or really feeling connected with a group of people who who use it. Yeah. Um, esteem. Esteem and self-actualization, I think, are really aspirational. But I think that you might look at some of the fitness or well-being or health um, digital products and uh-huh. think about how humans relate to them, how they feel about themselves, how they feel empowered by them perhaps um, in their lives. So they use them as a tool to help them with other sort of greater things in life. I don't Got know if that makes sense. Yep. But definitely not a conscious um, filter that we have when we're in workshops yeah but I I know that you know sometimes we'll go through and we'll gather some needs that definitely are lower they're not yeah so is it maybe more a tool for sort of setting your goals with your clients around because you might just be like cool we just we just want to hit the physiological and safety bit so the basics so it's really functional exactly yeah well we definitely we definitely want to tick those off I think aspiring higher is is what we all it's aspire to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so then the other theories around Simon Sinek's golden circle, which I I often use as a video to describe in my graphic yes, recording course. I think I do that. Did you? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's great. I mean, it's a really great um, example of a talk because of the the way he's structured it and the repetition that he uses and that it's a really simple message at the core of it. Um, so, and I can remember he says over and over again in the talk, people don't buy what you, what do. you do, they buy why you do it. Correct. Um, so the golden circle is pretty simple. It's three concentric circles. Why is in the middle? How is outside that? And what is on the outer of that? So um, how does that kind of apply to your UX design stuff? So Simon's sort of principle here is saying that customers, he's actually saying that customers buy why you've created your business, so why your business exists. And in a really basic sense, you could say, well, we really need to understand why customers behave a certain way or why they have certain needs. But if that resonates with why our organization or business exists then we're going to be instantly successful and have a great um, 
relationship with our customers. So, I mean, that's that's the basics of it. But I think that <clears throat> our why, our why as a business, sorry, we're using many whys. Yeah. Um, our why as a business, it, it, I think it does need to consider the why of our customers as well. So how how a customer wants to access our product, what is the actual product, yeah. how is how they use it and why is why it's important to them, why they're motivated by it, um, why they actually need it to begin with. <clears throat> yeah, sure. Okay, cool. So I guess a lot of the um the outcomes of what you guys do sit in the how. Yes. But it's all based on the why. Yeah, so usually the what, it would, it's in existence already. So it's a yeah. company or a, a business or a website. Yeah. So um, changing the how, so changing how a, how a customer accesses the value or in, in that experience. But at the heart is why they need, need that value to begin with and why it's important to them and why they care. Yeah. Very cool. I think it's a good model and I think it makes sense to apply it to the customer's needs as well. Yeah, definitely. Simon also talks about the brain, which is really awesome, understanding where it all is processed. Yeah, it's a great talk if anyone wants to look it up. Simon Sinek. Uh, I think it's just the, called Golden Circle. The Golden Circle. Uh, I thought it was just something... Anyway, you'll find it. Golden Circle or something about why. <laughs> find it there. It's a great talk. And, yeah, he does go into some of the um, the brain stuff that's really, really fascinating and interesting. Yeah. Um, so the last model that I just wanted to have a look at with you is the motivation discovery model, which looks really interesting. And that kind of talks about some of the brain stuff too, like what happens in the limbic brain which is that sort of like your lizard brain isn't it mm -hmm. um and then up to the neocortex which is the really conscious stuff okay i'm glad i got that right yes yes yes, yes. yeah <laughs> um so maybe if you could talk me through this a little bit i'll i'll um maybe try and pop images up of this if we can yeah um but in the meantime maybe you can talk us through sort of what this means and how you use it so um I've kind of correlated it to the methods that I use um, with UX or with design research. Mm -hmm. So um, to layer it in three, we've got sort of the surface level of how people see me or the, the Jacinta that I present to the world. Yep. Then we've got anything comfortable. So these are sort of maybe some of my behaviours that are kind of obvious. Mm -hmm. And then we've got deep. So that would be my aspirations, my dreams, my hopes, things yeah. that I don't often share with people. And it's, it's more difficult to share these things yeah, with sure. people yeah. for, for some more than others. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's Definitely. the three layers. So mm -hmm. surface, comfortable and deep. So to talk about behaviours, and I probably am going to repeat myself a bit, but things that I say are definitely surface. So yeah. I'll easily say that it's... Um, yeah that's fine uh comfortable would be things that i do or use and then deep again no feel or dream so okay so interviews or even workshops they definitely sit on the surface so yeah. i ask you a question and you give me an answer and yeah. it's it's all it's sort of 
it's quite light. We're not delving to the depths of yeah, your identity. Yeah, something I'm happy to share that's yeah, easy yeah. and, yeah. So that's definitely in the top level. Then, then when I talk about workshops, the next level down, when I get people to do things or tell more storytelling, I haven't got that in the model, but it's in these stories that I can observe a little deeper and draw some conclusions about the way that... Um, people do or feel about things yeah but um, now I am a big fan of workshops and activities and really interactively engaging with people in the the deepest level I think that using generative tools or basically using interactive activities where we ask people to do to engage in things so tell mm -hmm. stories act them out yeah build a lego draw a we're getting them to generate ideas or um, create how they feel or visualize how they feel yeah. in a drawing. This is where we start to get to the depth. The deep of, stuff. Yeah. Mm. We see what, what images they choose to include in that picture frame. Yeah. Um, what's important enough to be there yeah. and why. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so generative tools might be game storming, so you can get people to act things out. Yeah, or amazing. Uh, Yeah, there's lots of fun things. Or build a Lego figure that represents who you are, and then build another figure that represents your work, and how do they relate to one another. Um, and tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, it's cool, and I think it's always, like, it, stuff like that tends to scare people a little bit too, which I think is kind of good. It builds a bit of energy as well. Yeah. Um, there's so I work a lot in the MG Taylor process, which is a particular facilitation process that uses graphic recording as one of the roles. But they've got a whole bunch of different modules that they use, mm -hmm. um, covering a whole lot of different stuff. Some of it is really um, it's really active in that way, and mm -hmm. yeah, a whole lot, and some group stuff, solo stuff. All yeah, that sort of thing. I love that. It's, there's some really fascinating stuff. But yep. one of the modules they use is called Legends. So in their space, they've got this Legends kit, which is just full of wigs and props <laughs> and costumes and all of this crazy stuff. And the people involved have to do a skit to report out their work. So they might have been working on something for the last hour or two, and they don't yet know <laughs> that that's how they have to present it back. Um, but the idea is that you'll say something behind a mask that you wouldn't say yeah. as yourself. Yeah. So, you know, it's really, really fun and there's all of this sort of energy and people are like, oh, I don't want to do that. I'm going to look like an idiot. <laughs> and, you know, because a lot of the time these are really senior teams yeah. you're working with here asking to basically get up and make an idiot out of themselves. <laughs> but people love it and they often inject a lot of humour into it and in humour you can get it through a lot of truth yeah. that you might not usually do if you're just doing that you know a serious report out at the front of the room as Jacinta but if yes. you can be Superman totally. <laughs> you yeah. know it's really really interesting that sort of what we'll say behind a costume yeah it gives you self permission to, yeah to be properly honest which yeah. is awesome yeah there's a lot of other methods that sounds awesome first of all but there's different methods where you might have roles. So you might have a deck of cards that give you the role and maybe you're the protagonist or maybe you're just going to, your role is to criticise or um, question, question yeah. the questioner. So if you've each got a role to play and your role is to be the questioner, then you, you've got permission to question yeah, everything. Cool. So, yeah, that's interesting, little triggers. 
that yeah. give you permission to behave a certain way. And I guess it's also, I like that idea of the roles because I, I think a lot about um, the lenses or filters that we use for listening and some of them, like talking about bias before, some mm. of them are just inherent. You just have them and you just have to be aware of them and see if they're having an impact on how you're hearing things or not. Mm. And then some of them you can choose, like you can choose how you, like I'm sure that there are really particular lenses that you use in your workshops. Um when like for particular clients we know what outcomes they want so what you're listening for all of that listening between the lines stuff and all of that kind of thing yeah um but the roles is cool because that sort of enforces different lenses on you doesn't it so you actually hear things Mm. differently than you would as jessamy or jacinta yeah yeah Yeah, i like that it's cool there's so many um, methods that you can use yeah change the way that you're listening or change the way that you interact with people which is cool yeah that is really Mm. cool I think graphic recording does the same thing in a way too like it gives you it's just a different perspective like seeing it through visuals and through someone else's mind as well Mm. might give you a different perspective on how you've yeah that's actually reminding me there's a a method in UX not to harp on about UX but it's called (laughs) cognitive walkthrough okay so um normally we would do a sort of a review of the steps that a customer might take through a website and analyze it but what if I had a particular customer in mind so my mask is a particular type of customer which we often call a persona depends on um, depends on the project but I've got a particular customer mask on and I'm going to walk through my experience of a website or a service with that mask on and I'm going to collect my observations of how I feel or um, what I experience or how lost I get. (laughs) And is that um, cognitive walkthrough? Yes. Yeah. And is that those personas, are they generated by you or by the participants or? So in that sense, that would be a research informed persona. So we will have done research to um, synthesize all the different information about customers to create these personas. They're not the one source of truth, I will say, um, in doing customer research. But having a persona, and sometimes um, clients have their own personas that they've got for their customer represent their customer groups yeah but taking one of those or taking each of those and stepping through the same journey with five different customer mm. masks on it's really interesting because you start to see patterns and trends or really divergent points of time where the experience is really positive or negative for a different customer so mm. um, if you looked at it like a map so it might be really parallel all the way through, but perhaps um, customer number five has a really high or low point, which is interesting. Yeah. And how, how sort of deep do you go with those personas? Do you get really into their background, you know, whether they have family, where they live, like how kind of detailed do they get? We definitely gather that information, so yeah. demographics, um, but I'm interested in the other details about them as well, the stories that they've got the triggers why things are important to them other considerations in their life because we we're not just it's not just a website yeah like human beings are interacting with these things and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot in life to consider yeah um so we definitely do 
yeah, start to gather that sort of information. But it's very challenging to gather all of that information in a two-hour workshop with people. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And time is such a big factor in all of this stuff because yes. you can have the most amazing ideas and processes in the world, but, it, you know, there's still the factor of time and the factor of money that yeah. you've always got to work with. That's the reality. Yeah. So how much can you gather in that? It'd be nice if you had this exhaustive budget and you can really get to understand people. Yeah. But also people change. So I just wanted to mention that is you might do all this research and spend a lot of money to really understand the depths right now, but you need to continue to do that, which is mm. how do you continue to engage with those customers and validate these personas that we've created to represent them. So do you think that people are changing more rapidly these days as everything else is changing because we know that you know the like different technologies and stuff that are around must have an impact on people's behaviors or I don't know maybe even personalities or I don't know how they feel towards certain things yeah do you think that would make those personas and stuff or how or behaviors change more rapidly than in the past I think so like thinking back to um, Maslow's hierarchy I think that the basic things I think that there's a lot of things that stay the same, that there's fundamental human needs yeah, and how okay, we see sure. ourselves that stay, the chance, that stay the same. But I think there's sometimes some surface things, so the way that we access things or the way that we get used to. So the example is Netflix and all of this. We were yeah. having a discussion in the studio yesterday about all the different um, providers of subscription TV. Yeah. thinking, wow. We have changed our expectations, what we see as normal, our appetite for yeah. just different content. It's changed a lot, even yeah. in the last, I would say, five years. Totally. And I think, <sighs> yeah, expectations is the big thing. And I notice it in myself. Like, there's this amazing technology. I have no idea how it works, <laughs> but I expect it to work every time, on time, mm. everything to be available. And, yeah, Netflix, I mean... How long have we had it for? Maybe it's been a year, maybe like in terms of us personally. <laughs> not 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 long, but it's sort of it's so normal now. I don't I've not watched TV since we've had it, and I'm like, why would I watch that? <laughs> like I can't imagine a world where I would just watch normal TV with ads like an idiot. Yes. I <laughs> no offense to anyone, any TV watchers out there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the other thing travel like we um went overseas a couple of times last year which is great and every time I go these days I'm thinking because you know we'll just buy a sim card with some data or even if you don't do that that you can get on wi-fi most places to you know check our maps see what's around and then I remember going overseas for the first time when I was 18 and you didn't have any of that mm. you know you would maybe every once a week go to an internet cafe to send an email home but you had paper maps and you just found your way around but now it's like oh we don't have wi-fi mm -hmm. we're gonna die we'll never find our way home <laughs> you know amazing. that your expectation is just that you have a map in your pocket and then it works and that you can translate words and and not that huge a space of time really and i think that'll just continue to yeah, so it's how, that seems to be like the how, the expectations of how we access things. It's yes. changing. And there are things that are changing, but I think that fundamentally at the heart, the deeper stuff, I don't think that that really that is really changing. Changes. I don't. Yeah. But I, that is just my opinion. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah. The other day I actually, 
I left my phone at home and I had to find a place, like I was meeting somebody somewhere, I had to work it out before I left my desk and then make my way there and ask a human being where to go. <laughs> wow, it's incredible. <laughs> but you forget how reliant you become on those things and yeah <laughs> so a suggestion forget your phone at home and really have one of those days where you're like this is an adventure i'm gonna find my own way and i'm yeah. gonna talk to people <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i think that's a really nice idea yeah get back to some humanness mm-hmm. um <laughs> i sort of had this idea of humanness in my head a lot recently and i think you're totally right that those sort of human elements don't change and i think you know there's a lot of fear around I think in you know with the growing of technology and artificial intelligence and Mm. robots taking our jobs but I think there are certain human things that will just always be human and that's I think there's joy in that too I think when I talk about having the dog and having beautiful conversations with people or asking someone for directions these are the beautiful moments that you remember when you're not caught up in the hustle and bustle of getting somewhere efficiently which is weird but um, yeah exactly right mm, mm. yeah we'll finish up in a moment but before Mm -hmm. we do i just want to ask you your your number one tip or your number one learning around listening around being a good listener or being listened to well your choice um, I used to write this description of myself and I can't remember it verbatim, which is funny because I made it up. Um, <laughs> but basically just having the ability to stop and listen to another person to understand what they're trying to say to you and how they feel and why, not just waiting to respond or tell your side of the story. And I think that is to do with just pushing pause on you for a moment and give somebody else their moment to tell their story and just be fully present in that and value it and just I don't know I think it comes down to respect yeah yeah beautiful Hmm. well on that lovely note I think we'll finish up Jacinta McMahon thank you so much for joining us today thank you Jacinta. So interesting, isn't it, to see that similar theme emerge to Louise's top tip last week around making space to listen to others. And I really loved Jacinta's language there of pressing pause on your own stuff for a moment to give space to someone else. So thank you so much for tuning in to episode two. Um, Two episodes means that it's real now. (laughs) If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate and review it on iTunes, tell your friends, shout it from the rooftops. Um, You can also visit listenherepodcast.com for all the episodes as well as some extra listening related resources like there's some cool videos and articles and stuff there. If you've got any feedback at all or suggestions for guests, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email on jessamy at jessamyg.com.au. That's J-E-S-S-A-M-Y at J-E-S-S-A-M-Y-G-E-E dot Until next time, take care. <laughs>